0: First, where this one who is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it says his name is called the Word of God. And then that phrase where he says, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, both of those caught my attention because of what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews, where it says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I've been making the case to you that the one who is the Word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And because He is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that also describes His Word as a consequence of it describing Him. Because He is the one who is the Word of God, and because He is the living one and the active one and the judging one, it is true also that His Word, which is the inscripturated or written out Word of God, also has those very same qualities. And there's something significant about that passage in Revelation 19, and it is this, that it comes in the context of a passage that describes the judgment of God upon a world of unbelieving people. Upon a world of unbelieving people who know there is a God, they never deny He's he's God in Revelation. Instead, they just shake their fists at the heavens and curse Him and, and blaspheme Him. So they know that He is God. They know that there is a God. They know who it is. They know what He is telling them. They know His will. And yet they harden their hearts in rebellion and unbelief and in disobedience. And that's Revelation 19. Well, there's similarity, in obviously, to the warning passage in Hebrews 3 and 4, since that passage describes the possibility that one may fail to enter his rest only by hardening their heart against the Word of God and responding in impenitent unbelief, and thus face the judgment of this one who is called the Word of God, who is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So the contexts are very similar. The language is very similar. And I would make the case in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God, which is the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the written Word, which is also alive, by virtue of the fact that it is His, his word, that that is the instrument of God's judgment upon an unbelieving people. In Hebrews chapter 4, it is God's word that judges those who do not and will not believe. And the same can be said in Revelation 19, where a sharp two-edged sword goes out of the mouth of him who is the king of kings. And with it, he slays the nations, it says. His robe is dipped in blood. He comes back not, uh, not to bring peace and and to bring gentleness and to to ink a peace treaty in the world and not to bring world peace he eventually will do that but only by slaying the nations and executing judgment and it is his word that does that the written word that which he speaks with that he slays the nations executes judgment on unbelievers and ushers in the kingdom and eventually the new heavens and the new earth that is. That is the future of what the word of God will do. And so there is a similarity here between the warning passage and Romans 19. There's no 19th chapter in Romans between Revelation 19 and the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 3. So we've been, as I've been working our way through this passage, I've made the argument that I think that the author of Hebrews has in mind here a dual focus. He intends for us to understand that the word of God mentioned in verse 12 is the one who is referred to with the personal pronouns mentioned in verse 13. It is before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. He is the one who executes judgment, this one who is the Word of God. And He does this by His written Word and by the Word of His mouth with which He slays unbelievers and the wicked. And so this dual focus that the Word of God is both the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, the Word incarnate, and it is also His written and inscripturated Word, both of these things are true. What is true of the Word of God written is true of the Word of God because it is true of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Word incarnate who who uses His Word and energizes His Word and, and lives and dwells within His Word because it is His Word, because it is inspired and infallible and inerrant and all those things that we looked at last week. Because it is all of those things, it is living and it is active and it judges the hearts and minds of men. So that is our focus here. And last week we looked at what it means that the Word of God is living. And what that means in this context, that Jesus Christ is the one, the living one, who will come back and judge the living and the dead, and that the Word of God itself, by virtue of the fact that it is inspired and it is God's Word, it can be nothing else but alive with the energy and the life that God gives it by virtue of the fact that it is His Word. Today we're looking at this word, active. And if you thought we were going slow by looking at for the Word of God in a couple weeks ago, we're slowing down even further and just looking at these individual words. And I I think that in the next week or two, we're going to speed up a little bit and take more of this passage. But today we're just looking at what it means that the Word of God is active, that it is powerful, as some translations say, active and powerful, what that means in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, who that describes Him, and also what that means in relationship to the written Word of God and what the implications of that are. So let's look first of all at this word active. It is the word that is translated variously in Scripture. It's translated active here in the NASB. It's also translated as powerful. It is the energes, which is a word that means active, effective, and able to bring something about, able to accomplish something. So it is active, it is effective, it is effective in causing something to happen. So there's a word that you could use to just describe busyness, And you all understand that there's a difference between being busy and accomplishing something, right? Have you spent your day at work just being busy but not really getting anything done? And you get to the end of the day and you're exhausted but you have nothing to show for it? And that's a busyness. We're not talking about busyness. We're actually talking about a power, and ability to effect something and to accomplish something. So this word, energes, is a word that describes a work or activity that is toward the accomplishment of a determined and certain goal. There is a specific end in mind. And use that word. It has a specific end in mind. It's not just a a varied and random and purposeless purposeless activity that is just, just just moving about and doing stuff. And it's not an activity or a work that is accomplished in separation from the God who gives it its life and its power. that is the written word of God. This word energeis describes a focused and determined and certain ability to affect a goal that somebody or something has in mind. That's the word that is used. It is an effectual power for the accomplishment of specific purposes, not just an undirected busyness. So keep that in mind as we describe both the Lord Jesus Christ and His activity, as well as the activity of the Word of God, And because our task this morning is to consider the ways that this is true of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ways that this is true of Scripture. All right? So first, how is it that the Lord of Jesus Christ is active and busy? Oftentimes we think, sorry, not just, not just busy, but active toward the effecting accomplishment of something that He has in mind. Oftentimes we think of God in terms of that He is active and that He is working, and rightly so. When we ask God to work in providence to heal somebody, to bring somebody to salvation, to accomplish His purposes, to fulfill His promises, we pray generally to God or to the Father in respect to those desires that we have to see Him work in somebody's life or to work in uh, in accomplishing something. And so when we think of how God works and how God is active and how He has power, we think of it generally in terms of the Godhead. And that's okay as far as it goes, but it is not robustly specific and thorough and accurate enough. Since we are Trinitarians, as a couple of the songs that we just sang express, since we are Trinitarians, we must be thinking in terms of the activity or the work that our triune God does. It's not just that the Father is busy doing something and Jesus is sitting on the throne doing nothing and twiddling his fingers, and that the Holy Spirit is sometimes works here and sometimes works there, but that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all work together in concert to accomplish a certain end. So we speak of God working and accomplishing different things, and we ask Him to do so. And Scripture describes the different works that God does using a form of the same word that's translated active or powerful here. There's actually a family of words. Energes comes from a family of words that all describe this work or this activity or this power or this ability. And I'm going to give a few of those verses to you. For instance. In speaking of spiritual gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same God who works, it's a form of the same word, who works all things in all persons. 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit of God is doing this work. He is active. And God the Father is working all things after the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. So there's a picture of the Father who is working all things, not just some things, not just good things, not just bad things, but all things toward the accomplishment of His predetermined will. You see how the activity and the power that we are describing here has an end in mind, a result a focused, specific accomplishment of what God is intending to do through this activity. God the Father also works to sanctify believers. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Colossians 2.12 says, we've been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. God is busy and active and working. That is true, generically and generally speaking, of the triune God and the various activities that he does. And most of the time when we just use the word God in scripture, it is a reference to the Father in most cases. But Jesus Christ is the Christian's God. He's the one we worship. And so when we describe the work that God does and the activity of God does toward a predetermined end, some accomplishment, some object that He is intending to accomplish, we must also be thinking in terms of Jesus Christ being the one who does this work and is active in accomplishing His works. He is the active one. He was active before creation in planning our redemption and in planning the creation. He was there with the Father in the eternal counsels of the triune God, planning all of human history as it would unfold. He is the creator of all things, Colossians 1 says, John 1 and Hebrews 1 all describe him as the creator of everything that exists. All that has come into being has come into being through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the one through whom the Father created everything that exists. In the Old Testament, he is the one who appeared in all of the theophanies, walking with Adam in the garden appearing to Abraham, appearing to Moses, in giving the law, in delivering the nation of Israel from its bondage in Egypt, in giving them all the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant. He was the one who appeared to Isaiah and spoke through the prophets. He is the one who ruled through David and David's sons. He is the one who wrote the book of Psalms. He is the one who granted the wisdom that Solomon wrote down for us. He's active in all of those things, even speaking through the Old Testament, so that the Old Testament is the word, of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, even before he was incarnate in human flesh. And then in human history, he stepped out of heaven and left the worship of angels and came down here and was incarnated in the womb of a virgin and was born here. And he lived 30 years among us, doing nothing but righteousness and living a perfect life and then dying on a cross and rising again and ascending to heaven, where he now sits at the Father's right hand. Does that sound like an inactive God to you? No, this is, this is what we mean when we describe God who works all things after the counsel of his will. All of the Old Testament, every event in the Old Testament recorded and everything that happened at that time was all intended and purposed and predestined by God that it might accomplish his end result. He's working it all to the accomplishment of his sovereign purposes. And then today in Scripture, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and even now he is praying for us, interceding for us. He sits at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That is why He is living. He is the living one who even right now intercedes for His people. In John 10.16, Jesus said, He had other sheep and He would gather them in. So even now as He is interceding for us, He is also working all things after the counsel of His own will to gather in all of His sheep, all those whom Scripture says the Father has given to Him. And then He is busy sanctifying His bride, Ephesians 5 says that He is sanctifying His bride through the washing of, of water of the Word, making her a holy and pure and spotless and sinless bride to present to Himself on that great day when all of human history has been wrapped up. He's busy doing that even now. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, of course, describes the Lord Jesus Christ in these terms, saying He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Now remember back in Hebrews chapter 1 a few weeks ago when we were there, we went through those seven attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I mentioned to you that when it says that He upholds all things by the word of His power, that word that is translated uphold means to carry on, to carry along, to bear up something. It is not just the idea that the Lord Jesus is actively running around the universe, keeping all of the plates spinning, and He's active and busy trying to accomplish things and work the best thing that He can out in every situation. It is that He is literally carrying everything, all of creation, bearing it along, carrying it toward its ultimate accomplishment, which is the summing up of all things in Him, so that everything might belong to Him and that he might receive all of the glory and be able to take everything that he has brought together and worked out for his own purposes and hand it over to the Father, and the Father may give that to the Son, and God may be all in all. That's the glory of what awaits us in the future. The Lord Jesus Christ is carrying all of that along. He's active in working out everything to the accomplishment of his will for his purposes. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, All things are created by him both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him, and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Everything continues to exist because of Him. Right now, He, he maintains and upholds the existence of every molecule and atom and electron in the universe. Everything. It all stays together because of Him. He's active. He's the active one. Busy not only holding all of creation together, but he is busy carrying everything that he has created and every event that happens and every person that comes into existence. He is busy carrying it all the way toward its appointed goal. Not frantically doing whatever he can, not missing out a bunch of things, but upholding and sustaining all things. One of the words that is used here, the word that is used here translated active is also used in John's gospel to describe the works that Christ did. It's interesting that it is John who describes Jesus as the Word, and it is John who in Revelation describes Him as the Word of God and pictures the two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. And it's interesting that it is John who uses the term for work all the way through his gospel. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the word miracles or signs and wonders to describe Jesus' miracles, John, uh, John focuses attention on a different aspect of Jesus' miracles, and he refers to them throughout his gospel as the works, a form of this word for active or powerful here. And the miracles of Jesus in John's gospel are called works. John 5.17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And in that context, you remember that Jesus is defending his own deity because the Pharisees had stopped him for uh, and cornered him because he healed a man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda. And they cornered him because he had violated the Sabbath by commanding this man to take up his pallet and walk. And what was Jesus' argument? The father has been working until now, and I am working. Basically, he was saying that the Sabbath does not apply to me because I keep the universe spinning and I am doing the same work that the Father is doing even now. And I hold all things together. In me, all things hold together and consist. I keep the universe in balance and, and you're taking issue with me because I told a man to pick up his pallet and walk. The Father is working until now and I am working. And you're criticizing what I did by asking a man to pick up his pallet and walk because I healed a man on the Sabbath. It was the defense of his deity. And later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Listen to the the reference to works. This is how Jesus described His own miracle, as works, as activities, things that He did. But they were signs that pointed them to the claims that He had made. In John 5, verse 36, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. John ten verse twenty five. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And there are about ten other verses that I could quote to you from the Gospel of John, where Jesus described his miracles in terms of this word, activity or work. He is powerful, and he is the working one. He works in past. He works in the future, and he is going to come again and judge all of the nations as the word of God, just as Revelation nineteen describes. So, how does it? how, How does the fact that the word of God is active apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the one whom Hebrews has already said, upholds everything by the word of his power. He keeps it all together. A focused and diligent, specific activity that Jesus Christ, the word of God, has in mind toward which he is bringing all of creation perfectly. Everything is on time. Everything is unfolding according to schedule. All the nations will fall just on time and he will slay all of the nations with the word of his mouth just when he intends to do so. He's carrying it all along toward that appointed end. Now, how does it apply then or picture the Word of God? How is Scripture active as the Word of God? What does it do? What does that activity look like? Well, here are a couple of things. Scripture as the active Word of God is not active in itself. We should not think of Scripture being active or powerful in the same sense that we think of a book of incantations being active and powerful, having some magic humming ability as if, is if we're quiet enough, we can, in a quiet room, hear the book breathe or hear the humming noise that the book makes. It's not active and powerful in that sense. It is active and powerful not because of what it is in itself, but because of who it is that is active and working through the Word. Because God has intended and determined and purposed from eternity past to accomplish everything in human history through His spoken Word, and as a result of His spoken word, it is living because God lives in the book. And God does what He does through Scripture. This is God's appointed means for accomplishing all that He does. It is active because God uses it. It's not that, scripture, it's not that God uses Scripture because it is active and powerful, but that Scripture is active and powerful because God uses it. Do you see the difference between those two things? It's not that God taps into the power of this book, and so he thinks, man, that's that's a really handy thing I got there. I think I'll use that. If I can get people to quote it and maybe read it once in a while, I could accomplish my purposes. And so that would be a good tool. It's not as if God does that. Rather, it is that God has intended and purposed to work all that he does through his word to accomplish everything concerning you and me through his word. And because he does that, it is active and it is living and it is powerful. And remember that the definition that we're using for active is active and powerful toward the accomplishment of a certain purpose. The Word of God has the ability and has the power to accomplish exactly what God intends it to accomplish. And it is God who decrees and purposes and wills and determines and has so united himself to his truth through his Word that he uses his Word to accomplish his purposes. Scripture has the power to create Psalm 33, verse 6 says, The word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their hosts. How did God create everything out of nothing? Simply by speaking. Do you see why his word is powerful? He simply says, and it happens. He speaks, and it is, and it stands fast, and it is established. And it's established as long as he determines or decrees. Simply by the word of his mouth, he created all things out of nothing. Genesis says, and God said. And that was enough to bring everything into being. And God said, he created everything just by the power of his His spoken word out of nothing. Nothing existed. Nothing is nothing. There wasn't material there that God used. Nothing is nothing. Nothing is the things that rocks dream about. Before God spoke, there was absolutely nothing. And then he spoke. And in six days, he created everything. And he did it simply by the word of his mouth. In Psalm 148, after say speaking about the heavens and the hosts and the angels and the sun and the moon and the stars, Psalm 148 verse 5 says, Let them, that is all of these things, angels, heaven, moon, stars, praise the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He simply spoke it and they were. They exist by his decree and by his word. It is by his word that he brings us salvation. We talked about this last week. It is in the exercise of his will that he brings us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, We have been born again by the living Word of God. That living and enduring Word of God that abides forever. That is the instrument of your salvation. If you are saved, it is because you, through Scripture, came to understand you're a sinner, came to understand that Christ is a great Savior, and came to understand what you must do in response to that provision. All of that came through Scripture. You weren't walking, I've heard people give their testimony while I was out walking through the wilderness one day and I looked up and saw the beauty of the sky and I've been a Christian ever since. No, that's not how you became a Christian. If you were a Christian, is because you heard in Scripture your need and you saw in Scripture your provision and you understood from Scripture what your response should be. And you repented and believed. Because God did that work. How? Through His Word. Scripture is not only that which brings salvation, but it also sanctifies the believer. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Thy Word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Ephesians 5.26 says that Christ is cleansing us, this church, his bride, by the washing of water with the word. The word of God equips us for service, which is why God has given to the church pastors and teachers, people to preach and teach scripture. Why? Because God is doing something through the activity of preaching and understand the word of God as it is presented. We hear the word of God and we hear the word of God preached. It equips us for every good work. That is why God has given to the church pastors and teachers, that we may speak the truth and love and that we all may be grown up together and equipped. Reading through Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, I just read through those two psalms, which are two psalms that focus on, on the Word of God, and I made a list of all the things that those psalms say that Scripture does. Here's how Scripture is active. Scripture restores the soul. This is from Psalm 19. Restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, warns of God's judgment, warns God's servant, and keeps us from sin. In Psalm 119, 176 verses, about the Word of God, all about the Word of God. Here are just a few of them. This is by no means complete. This is just a few of them. The Word of God keeps the heart pure. It strengthens the believer. It produces reverence for God. It revives the soul, comforts, teaches discernment and knowledge, makes us wiser than our enemies, gives insight, gives understanding, imparts wisdom, creates a hatred for sin and falsehood. It sustains the believer. The Word of God produces godly fear and reverence. The Word of God creates a hunger for the Word of God. It gives light to those in darkness, and it delivers from sin and harm. And those are just to name a few. If you lack a hunger for the Word of God, I have a a, a solution for you. I have a remedy. You need to read Scripture. You need to listen to the preaching of Scripture. The Word of God, Psalm 119 says, creates a hunger for the Word of God. The Word of God gives us light so that we can even understand what we see in the light. That is how magnificent and marvelous it is. In the Word of God, we have been granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's what 2 Peter 1 says. Why? Because it is active to do all of these things. When Paul went to the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, For this reason we constantly thank God for you, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is in truth, the word of God which does its work in you. Paul understood where the power of Christian living and sanctification was. It's in Scripture. The word of God is powerful and active. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. God said through Jeremiah, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that shatters a rock? Heart of stone, what does it need? It needs the word of God. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. The word of God is God's ordained instrument. He has not ordained any other instrument for the salvation of people, the sanctification of his people or the securing of his sheep. He has ordained no other instrument but his word. It is his word that he uses for that. God has not promised to use poems and songs and movie clips and cinema and the summer blockbuster series. He has not promised to use drama or puppet shows or interpretive dance or ribbons or any other such nonsense. He has not ordained to use any of those means. He has ordained himself to use one means and one means alone for the salvation of His people and the sanctification of His church and the glory of His own name, and that is His word. So if you want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't hide Scripture from them. You give them Scripture. That is what they need. That is the God-ordained, God-appointed means of Him accomplishing all that He does. And by His words, He accomplishes His end. And His Word always accomplishes its end. Sometimes the end that God has in view is to soften the heart and to open the eyes and to open the ears and to change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh and to grant them repentance and faith so that they may believe and to change them from a sinner into a saint. Sometimes that is God's appointed mean. At other times, God's appointed mean is the hardening of the heart and the repulsion of the unbeliever and the the securing of their judgment. Both Pharaoh and Moses heard the Word of God. What did it do in Pharaoh's heart? It hardened his heart. It accomplished exactly what God intended it to do. God said to Pharaoh, I will harden your heart so that I may destroy you and demonstrate my glory before the nations. That was God's appointed end for his word. In that circumstance, it always accomplishes exactly what God intends it to accomplish. God doesn't try to use his word. God doesn't try to do anything. God uses his word. Always does what he wants him to do. He always accomplishes exactly what he intends to accomplish through his word. Every revival and reformation in the history of the church has been focused upon the preaching of the word of God. Every legitimate revival and reformation. You go back to the Welsh revivals in Wales in the 1900s, or you're talking about the Reformation in the 1500s, or the Great Awakening in America in the 1700s, under Whitfield and Edwards. All of them have this one thing in common. Every revival and reformation begins and is carried on by the strong, biblical, doctrinal, expository preaching of the Word of God. Without exception, that is the case. Without exception. It is always centered on the Word of God. Luther Luther credited the Word of God for the work done in the Reformation. Now we have quote-unquote reformations in our day, the New Apostolic Reformation and the Brownsville Revival and the Toronto Airport Blessing, and all of these things are not centered on Scripture at all. They're centered around emotional frenzies and bizarre manifestations and cult-like leaders and hyped up emotional music and mental manipulation and emotional manipulation. They're not They're not birthed out of Scripture. Most people stay far, far away from the Word of God. They don't explain the Word of God or exposit the Word of God. Their, do- their preaching is not doctrinal, and they don't focus and center people around Scripture at all. And therefore, those are not genuine and true God-sent revivals. In our land, often we, as Christians, we're encouraged that we ought to pray for revival. Every May we have a National Day of Prayer. Where we're encouraged to pray for revival. And we misquote and abuse and bastardize that passage of Scripture out of 2 Corinthians 7.14. If my people who are called by my name, and we are not those people, and we're not the ones called by his name in that sense, if they'll humble themselves and repent and believe, etc., then I'll visit their land and heal them and restore them. That's not for America. But we quote it and misuse it anyway. And we pray for revival. You know how revival comes? Strong, biblical, doctrinal preaching of His Word, centered on His Word. Always. And as long as we have a nation full of people and churches and ministries that make little of the Word of God and hide it from people and, and hope to just give out just a little bit of it here and a little bit of it there, there is no possibility that we could have genuine Reformation or revival. What we need to pray for in every corner of our land is that pastors and churches and leaders and ministries may return to this confidence in the Word of God, that it is the living and abiding and enduring Word of God, able and active to accomplish everything that God intends for it to accomplish. There's no power in the abuse of Scripture. And let's keep in mind what we're talking about when we talk about God's Word being powerful and active or having the ability to accomplish an end. There is no power at all in the abuse or the misuse of Scripture. There's no power at all in the misquoting of Scripture or the misrepresenting of what God has said or the quoting of Scripture out of context. The Bible is not a mantra book that we plug, we, we pluck verses and phrases out of and sort of throw them at our problems as if we we're throwing sort of a bolt of lightning at something, hoping that it'll go away. That's, that's not what Scripture is. It's not a, just a, a buzzing hub of activity that we can kind of pull out a phrase and toss it out there like a power bomb somewhere and expect it to accomplish its ends. God has a particular end for His Word, a particular thing that He accomplishes through it, and we cooperate with God's purposes when we teach and explain and preach and we sing and we pray and we share His Word. When everything that we do centers around His Word, then we cooperate with God in the right use of His Word to the accomplishment of His purposes. So a sermon that is full of twisted Scripture or misrepresentations of God's name and God's nature, a sermon has no divine power to accomplish anything. It might make us feel good. It might warm our hearts. It might put a little skip in our step. It might make give us a better outlook on what we're facing on Monday morning. It might do all of those things, but chicken soup for the soul can do the exact same thing. And it will have just as lasting a benefit. But when when God's Word is rightly used, and rightly explained, and it is laid out before people, and we all can gather around it and see what it says and respond to it the way God has ordained us to respond to it. Then, and only then, His Word has the power to accomplish what He intends in the life of His people. The power and the activity of the Word of God rests in the right and proper presentation of God's truth in its context, the way He intended, communicating the mind of the Holy Spirit in writing it Just closed Adult Sunday School class this morning with a quotation from Martin Luther, and he announced that at the end of his closing. He said, I'm going to close with a quotation from Martin Luther. And I thought, well, I have a quotation from Martin Luther too that I'm closing my sermon with today. I hope it's not the same one that he's quoting. And then he said it came from a sermon of Martin Luther, and I thought, well, my quotation comes from a sermon of Martin Luther as well, so I hope it's not the same thing that he's quoting. And then he said it was from 1548 or 49. I thought, okay, good, mine's from 1522. So unless Luther repeated himself 20 years later, we're pretty safe. Yeah, five years after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther preached a sermon in which he explained what he believed was the power behind the Protestant Reformation. And he said in that sermon that he didn't attribute the power to the use of force or, or coercion or the use of the sword in in, in in, making people believe or do anything. He said it is just the Word of God that was responsible for the Protestant Reformation. So here's what Luther wrote. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion, Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. That is to be the confidence of every child of God in the power and ability and activity of the word of God. And may it be the case for all of us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word, your mighty word, able to accomplish everything that you have determined and predestined for it to accomplish. We thank you that it does its work in those who believe that we who are gathered here have accepted it as the word of God and not merely as the word of men, but we see in it the very life of God, the nature and character of our God, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would drill these truths deep down into our hearts that we may love your enduring and abiding word and do all that we do for the sake of it and your glory and your purposes and your kingdom, which is to come. We love you and thank you for your grace and your kindness. May you be glorified through us as you use your word to accomplish all that you have determined through us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.